Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Exit Point. If this is your first time listening, this is a podcast that examines life through the lens of some of the world's most extreme athletes. If you'd like to support this independent project, please consider giving us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts and click on the Buy Me A Coffee link in the description. A huge thanks to everyone who's supported us so far. It really means a lot. In this episode, we speak with Chris McNamara. Chris is an expert in big wall climbing and describes himself as a recovering wingsuit base jumper. Climbing Magazine once pointed out that 3% of Chris's life had been spent on the face of El Cap, which he's climbed 70 times. He holds nine big wall speed climbing records and is the winner of the American Alpine Club's prestigious Bates Award. He's written 10 books, he's the founder of Super Topo, and he's now the editor-in-chief of Outdoor Gear Lab, my personal favorite website for researching gear. Along with other things, we plan to talk to Chris about a climber's mindset, his risk assessment, his intense base career, and when he finally felt like enough was enough. So without further ado, let's get Chris on the track. Chris, could you tell us a little bit about what you do now for work and your business? Uh, so I have Gear Lab. It's Outdoor Gear Lab, Tech Gear Lab, and Baby Gear Lab. And it's basically Consumer Reports style testing that we provide for free. So everything from camping tents to diaper pails. And um, yeah, we kind of based here in Tahoe, but we have uh, people around the country testing gear. Cool. And how many employees does your company have? I think we have 17 and then maybe a hundred independent contractors. Wow. That's great. Yeah. I'm adulting pretty hard over here. I never thought I'd do that. <laughs> what a trip. Matt was just asking how you and I know each other. And even though it's like a distant memory of a past life, we were both volunteers for a search and rescue team in Marin County. And I think my only memory of you at this point is this wilderness survival course that we took and you took it way serious. Like you had only a sleeping mat and a couple of power bars and you know, like the rest of us had our full kit <laughs> and Matt, check this, this crazy dude like went and slept mid slope, covered himself with leaves. <laughs> it was a good time. We learned a lot about plants that you could eat, you know, and where you could sleep and sting out in the elements. But I remember Chris the next morning looking like he was ready for a shower and some real sleep. <laughs> Chris, have you always taken things like that to the extremes? Um, you know, it's funny. I totally forgot about that until just now. And uh, it's all coming back. That was classic. Um, <laughs> I'd say I have maybe a reputation for getting highly focused on things and taking them seriously. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's funny because I had heard about base jumping and thought it seemed unattainable and un otherworldly. Yeah. You know, like I live on the West Coast of California and while there are places like Yosemite nearby, it's illegal. And I found out that someone that I had been volunteering with on the search and rescue team was doing it. And I thought, if they can do it, then maybe <laughs> I can do it. I, th I think I inspired more than a few people with a similar uh, story. Like, wait, that guy can do that? Oh. I got this. <laughs> You're not the first person to to say or to um, kind of uh, imply that. 
So Matt, how do you and Chris know each other? We actually don't know each other. Um, I uh, grew up watching his videos climbing. Um, or I maybe mean, didn't grow up. I was an adult at that point, but I had found uh, a lot of um, climbing expertise through those videos. And uh, I think I've met him a couple of times in passing in Yosemite, but like nothing to really shake a stick at. Uh, so like I'm kind of getting to know him for right, like right now on this interview. Oh yeah. Very cool. My wife just pointed out that you're responsible for super topo. Yeah, that was the, uh, the original thing that kind of got me from just climbing to kind of entering the real world through, through a business. So Chris transitioning from that, will you tell us a little bit about your first base jump? So the first base jump was the power tower. Um, right near Lodi, at Rio Vista, Central Valley. And uh, I was a death camper. I had zero skydives, which at the time somehow seemed acceptable. I'm, I'm guessing it's not as acceptable these days. But um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I wasn't really taken with it. Um, it was cool. I was like, check that box. Um, but it wasn't until I saw Super Terminal and saw you know, the sport of flying instead of the sport of falling that my world just totally turned upside down. Funny thing is Hans who posted super terminal was over at my house for dinner about a week ago. And we talked about the explosion of interest that that video created. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to remember a day before, you know, YouTube and all that stuff. So it was on a DVD and that DVD got played so many times in so many locations. Um, and yeah, after I watched it, I pretty much went to Walmart, bought a tracksuit because I didn't know what they were using. So I just like, kind of looks like they're wearing a, a tracksuit, like an Adidas style mafia style tracksuit. And, uh, I'll put some cords in this and I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's how this works. Um, yeah, I bought it in a, a Walmart in Winnemucca for $22 and, um, and I was off. Wait, off of what? You just got when jumped it off of a, off of a cliff, just like <laughs> test flight. <laughs> I, I definitely took a few, um, few trips out of the plane with it, um, just to make sure it worked, make sure it didn't disintegrate right away, which it did disintegrate eventually, but not while someone was base jumping it while someone was skydiving it. <laughs> so can you take us back to that period of your life where you were quite an accomplished big wall climber and like many of Yosemite climbers at the time were drawn to free fall? Yep. Yeah. So at that point, um, I'd climbed El Cap maybe 70 times and I'd had a lot of base jumpers go right over me. And so I was very familiar with base jumpers and I'd gotten to know Frank Gambali a little bit through Dan Osman. And I actually went to the troll wall in 97 to climb it and to climb Sherag and, um, met Frank Gambali at the base of the troll wall. And he had just set the tracking record of 28 seconds, which he was telling me about. And he showed me the video and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I thought, yeah, there's no way I'll ever do that until I started rope jumping with Dan Osman. Um, you know, for those who don't know, he was kind of, you know, before there was Dean Potter, you know, Dan Osmond kind of created that, um, 
that type of career path of taking climbing and then getting really creative about it and doing all sorts of things that became less and less about climbing, but still kind of involved the the hardware, the rigging, the locations. And he was um, taking climbing ropes, tying them together and doing, you know, up to 600 foot uh, jumps, which unlike a bungee jump, instead of jumping over the anchor point, you jump kind of from the side and do a pendulum. But we were, um, we were jumping un- under bridges. Sometimes Frank Gambali was there base jumping off the same bridge. And we all kind of thought, you know, the, the right cast of characters is here. Maybe we'll all, you know, all, all of us will become, um, base jumpers, but then, um, Dano died in 98 and, um, Frank Gambali died, I think a couple of years later and that kind of closed that door. And so all of us climbers, you know, with the exception of a, of, of a few of them kind of just went back to climbing and, and really didn't, didn't think about base jumping in, until much later. And now you're talking some pretty deep history here. There's some famous people in our subcultures. Um, maybe we can uh, touch on each one of those people a little bit more because I also chased uh, Dan Osmond around uh, doing rope jumps. I mean, not not actually. Uh, he it was uh, before my time, but you know, watching him do videos of uh, you know backflips off of uh, Auburn Bridge and you know jumping all these huge like thousand foot plus he had the record at one point world record was like 1200 feet off of the leaning tower right i forget how tall the leaning tower was but it was yeah it was it was massive it was at this whole massive. different scale um, yeah so can we get into him a little bit and uh then your rope jumping because that's a really crazy transition that i think uh, a lot of people don't uh even consider that, you know, people were kind of base jumping ropes <laughs> before they got into the sport. Yeah. Um, I forget how it actually started. You know, I don't know if, if Dano invented it or if he was inspired by someone else, but um, he just realized that even though a climbing rope only has maybe, I don't know, seven or 10% stretch, if you um, jump to the side, that's enough stretch to kind of create this massive pendulum. And, uh, then he just started going fine and and finding the most wild things to jump off of. And he actually, um, one night came over to my house and he was like, we're going to go jump the golden gate bridge, um, underneath it. Um, do you want to go? And I was like, ah, I don't know. I, uh, I decided not to. And sure enough that night they got busted by the cops. We're facing a $12,000 fine. Um, and somehow, went to court and got fined $36, which I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> this was pre 9-11. I think the outcome would be much different now. Um, the other crazy base, uh, sorry, rope jumping story was we all went to the Auburn Bridge, um, you know, the Forest Hill Bridge. And he, that one is about, a, I think, a six or 700 foot rope jump. And Frank Gambali was there. We, he had it all set up and everyone went to Denny's to hang out for some reason. And I showed up kind of late, right when the cops did. And I, I managed to like jump in the bushes, not get, um, busted, but the the cops were there for a long time. Everyone kind of was like, ah, night's over, except 
Dano and, and Frank were then like, well, no, the cops are gone. We can of course just proceed. And so, um, Frank goes down and jumps off the bridge and Dano, what kind of made him special and what I think had such a big impact is he was really into getting other people into the stuff. It wasn't just the Dano show. He really wanted all his friends to experience the things he was creating. So he ties in his friend into the rope. So you imagine this giant horseshoe of a a rope, um, 300 feet down basically. And then it comes back 300 feet. So it's just this massive amount of weight and his friend kind of gives himself a countdown. He's about to jump, but then he kind of chickens out. It's his first jump. And, um, Dan is like, no, no, you got this. You got this. His friend chickens out again. And then he's about to go. And then Dana goes like, wait, something's not right here. Hold on. And Dana decides to grab the rope and start pulling it. And he pulls up about 300 feet of rope and finds that it wasn't connected to anything. It had been cut <laughs> by the cops. And it was only because his friend had had that hesitation that he didn't jump this rope that wasn't anchored to anything. Um, oh my God. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> my palms are sweaty just hearing this. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I don't know what the lesson there is, but. Um, Dude, trust your intuition. That's it right there. Like, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, well, sometimes you just got to say fuck it and send it. And other times you got to listen to that inner voice. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And then kind of, you know, the, the last, um, I mean, um, Frank, I mean, he, you know, impacted so many people. He impacted me. And then he impacted, you know, most of the people who ended up teaching me because um, the community was that small and he was that, you know, big a, a personality and, and that talented. Um, but I was actually on El Cap for his last jump. Um, very few people ever jumped the uh, southwest side of El Cap. And so when I was on this route called Excalibur, kind of next to Salathe, on the southwest side there, uh, and someone jumped over us, you know, early in the morning, I was like, that has to be Frank. And, uh, and only later did I find out that, you know, right after he landed, the Rangers knew he was going to be there, I think. And, uh, chased him and he jumped in the river and, and drowned. Um, and that was kind of, yeah, just one of those other signs that, you know, maybe, maybe climbing and base jumping aren't going to work out. Um, and, and that's kind of where it was back in 2001. Can you give us a little bit of a characterization of Frank Gambale? Because I know a lot of people have heard his name and certainly we've gone through a couple of points here, uh, especially his untimely demise, but can you give us a little bit of background on the character? Yeah. I mean, he was a larger than life personality. Um, not, you know, like a quiet shy guy. He, um, really, um, had at one point I had his demo video, which I felt was like having this piece of gold. It was a VHS tape, of course. And, um, just all the different things he did from ski base to buildings to, you know, setting the tracking record on troll wall. He just really, um, encompassed that like all around, um, you know, athlete, you know, he was, he was a skier, he was a base jumper and he was able to, you know, combine the two in this very creative way. A lot like, um, Dan Osmond was able to combine all these, um, 
sports in a really creative way. And, and then later Dean Potter. And what era are we talking about? Because a lot of those things you're mentioning, uh, have now, you know, been taken up by a fair few people, but at the time, uh, we're pretty cutting edge. So what era are we talking about ski base and all of this, all their crazy stuff? Yeah, this is all kind of mid to late nineties, um, that I was, you know, there and involved. And then of course they were doing it years before that, maybe mid to early nineties. So, uh, yeah, I hate to admit it, but that was almost 30 years ago. Um, so it, it's interesting to see these things, you know, resurrecting and, um, evolving now, you know, I think someone just did the leaning tower again, 20 years later last year, um, from that original, that original time that Dano did it. Nice. So really what I wanted to touch on there was that a lot of the things you were saying are groundbreaking for the time on equipment that, you know, most of us would be pretty terrified just to jump off of a standard object and here they come doing, you know, <laughs> pretty some, you know, cutting edge stunts. And Dan also, I mean, Dan Osmond was really testing the limits on a lot of the equipment and rigging, you know, innovating things that a lot of us didn't know were possible dealing with a lot of unknowns. Um, and so I think, uh, it's fair to put those, both of those people as, uh, innovators and kind of legends of the sport. Yeah. I mean, at the time there weren't a lot of people they were bouncing ideas off of and collaborating with, which is, I think more where the, both those sports are today. It was really much more that, um, you know, pioneering spirit of, of working it out yourself and may, yeah, maybe gut chest gut checking with a couple buddies, but, um, they, they were true kind of individual pioneers. Prototype humans for prototyping gear. Those two really helped lead the way for you. Are there any other people in that era that, uh, as you were starting to jump that sort of helped you along the way mentors of sorts? Um, I mean, as soon as I figured out the, um, my homemade version of the tracking suit, I kind of, um, was self-taught for the most part because it was the winter and there was nothing else to jump off except for the, you know, Southwest desert. And I didn't know of anyone else with a, a, a tracking suit. And so I was sort of making that one up, but, um, I soon enough, I brought kind of the Lodi skydiving base jumping crew out there. Um, but it wasn't until I got to go to Europe for the first time that I think the following summer that I met Yuri uh, Kuznetsov, who, um, you know, at the time and even today is still, you know, pushing the the limits of what's possible with, you know, starts and glide ratios. So I got really lucky in that I got to meet up with Yuri, not only because he was super talented, but everyone, everywhere he went, all the locals wanted to show him the new cliffs. And then they'd see me next to him and they'd be like, damn, I guess we got to take this guy with us too. But um, it got me in the door to being able to do a lot of amazing, amazing, cool jumps across Europe. Matt, there's this video out there where JT and Chris are sort of like joking back and forth, like sounding like Beavis and Butthead. And as they're, as they're, they're touring around some of these like most classic spots in France. And for years I watched these videos and we're like, wow, these are just amazing jumps. They're huge and had no idea where they are. And it was shitty quality, you know, and it's like almost constant potato chipping, never a moment of stability. And then like opening up like right into the trees and landing. And 
And it's funny because Seb, I think this is probably the guy who showed you around there and he's a good friend of ours. And you know, like there's even some quotes of him quoting Seb in that video. And it's like hilarious to look back at just some of these videos recently in preparations for this conversation was like, oh shit, I know these jumps. That's Veron and, you know, Gorge de la Bourne and... That's actually him terrain flying Maglan Classic. Like, what a nut yeah, and, job. and in what kind of suit, right? Like, what what kind of suit were you guys terrain flying at that time? A, a Phantom or a, a Vampire One, which seems so cutting edge at the time. But yeah, when I was just talking about people who who looked at me and were like, "Ah, oh, do we have to take this guy?" I think Seb would probably jump to the top of that list. Um, I think he was looking for an artful way to be like can we not let this guy jump off these things, please? Or at least while I'm not, while while I'm here, can he just, I don't know, drive us around? <laughs> was there a, a legitimate time in your career there where uh, you were at a high risk for being a fatality on the load? Um, I think you'd have to ask the people around me. Um, I definitely didn't have the reputation. I think you actually summed it up pretty well with all the potato chipping. Um, for a lot of those jumps... I was a little over my skis as far as my competency for how much I wanted to push it. Um, so yeah, I, it's a good thing that I, I, I think I quit when I did. <laughs> well, can you talk to us before we get there to, uh, about your progression? Um, because you've also mentioned like several famous areas to learn how to base jump and there's certainly a culture that's come out of Lodi and Yosemite that I find incredibly interesting. So can you touch on how you learned and, uh, how you got from, you know, watching that video, uh, to like wingsuit terrain flying? Yeah. I mean, so super terminal that changed everything as far as, um, it's no longer a sport about flying or sorry about falling. It's all about flying. Um, but at the same time, the climbing ethic of first ascents was really strong. And so I pretty much, um, put all of my energy into finding new stuff to jump off of and basically went to Europe and Lodi to get the minimum skills required to be able to go jump off new things. Um, and I think a lot of people would say like, it was, it was truly the minimum. Um, and you know, it, for me, that's always been kind of, I think with everything I've done from the climbing world and beyond, what makes it interesting is the creative aspect and the creative aspect is dreaming up, huh? I wonder if anyone's ever thought about jumping off that, you know, what would that look like? Um, looking at maps, uh, you know, this is the rock drop days. So dropping a lot of rocks off cliffs, you know, no laser, no lasers. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, just kind of combining those two, that kind of super terminal inspiration met meeting that climbing first descent ethic and really realizing that the sport was in a magic, magical spot. It, pr it probably still is. But that spot passed in the 50s and 60s for big wall climbing. And I could see that starting in the you know early 2000s, wingsuiting was just entering the start of that golden age. Um, you know, and I, a golden age is basically, I think, defined as when the progression is just you know, off the charts. Um, the, the barriers are being broken left and right. And then at a certain point, you know, sports keep progressing but they'll never progress 
quite as fast and for like a and and, a, and for a first time like they did in a, in a certain window for climbing that was in the late 50s and 60s and for for big wall climbing especially and for um for base jumping i saw that like in the the early mid 2000s this was the moment that it was about to just take off you know, I commented on your potato chipping and maybe some of your shady exit styles, but I don't want anyone to get it twisted. You're very much were pushing the edge of the unknown at this point and led the way on the American side of what's possible. Do you think there's a difference in people that uh, get into the sport from climbing versus from flying? And uh, I'll, maybe I'll add just a little bit here from what I see. I observe like a lot of climbers getting into it and looking at base jumping operationally. Like, how do I use this tool? And so they basically like get the minimum amount of information and then they'd go to use the tool versus like paragliding and skydiving. It seems like they approach the sport of like, I already know how to use all this equipment, but I need to be shown how this is actually physically possible because I don't believe it yet. Um, so can you tell me like, it, was it different getting into it from, uh, from climbing? Did you have, uh, some kind of different mentality than, uh, skydiving that allowed you to just get into it with a bare minimum and not be, <laughs> well, terrified that it's not going to work out? Yeah. I mean, the two things are, um, I think climbers do, really just see it as in this tool bag of really amazing things you can do in the mountains. Um, I actually don't know too many climbers who have ever really gotten into the skydiving part of it. Um, I'm actually having a hard time thinking of, of any right now. I'm sure there are some, but it's, I think much more this perspective of, um, loving being in the mountains, the more kind of, um, steep and interesting mountains, the better, and the more different kind of tools and ways to approach them, the better. And so that definitely led almost all my climbing buddies to really seek, um, the fastest path to be able to jump off amazing exits in Yosemite in the West. And then of course, um, around Europe as well. There's also just the other big factor of being an American base jumper in that era is there were so few cliffs to jump off legally. Um, back then, nobody was jumping stuff really shorter than, you know, 800 feet for a start. And, you know, the number of 800 foot starts that are legal in the U.S. is uh, even today, I'm guessing, is, is probably less than five or 10. Um, and if you want to extend that to a thousand feet, you're super limited. So it's a whole different, um, progression than living in Europe and being able to jump a handful of times each day and really progress quickly. And, and, and that just sets you up for a whole different career. So I think that's kind of part of the, the reason why I, um, and, and a lot of my friends kind of, you know, pushed it maybe a little faster than would be, um, recommended, was kind of those two factors combining. There's this element of mindset worth talking about as well. Let me bounce this off you and tell us what you think. I started my skydiving and base career in Lodi where I was introduced to a lot of high level climbers like Dean and Stanley, for example. 
they embodied this determination that climbers have to send a route, you know, and there was a sense of pride and personal accomplishment, sorry, personal accomplishment that comes from overcoming difficult challenges. This element of constantly challenging themselves, I don't think this mindset necessarily works seamlessly with wingsuit base. Would you speak on the difference in mindset that you have observed in climbing and in base jumping? Yeah, I mean, climbing is a sport where you start at a number grade and you're very quickly focused on moving up that. Um, at some point, you start to plateau a little and then you might diversify into being more creative about what you're doing. But at least at the beginning, and I think for most people throughout their career, you are focused on kind of, you know, are you climbing 512 in this element? Are you doing a first ascent at this grade? Um, which I think, you know, certainly that doesn't apply to skiing or a lot of other um, mountain activities um, or skydiving, or it's, it, it's hard to, yeah, think of too many other um, activities except for the ones that are really run by a stopwatch where people are so focused on progressing um, through the numbers. So certainly that's a, a big part of it. Um, but I think there's also a more universal part, which is just dopamine um, and understanding. Um, you know, I, I just recently started understanding it more by reading this book, uh, Molecule of More, but a lot of people think of dopamine as like a pleasure neurotransmitter, but it's actually much more around um, novelty and uh, much more around the unknown. And I think that's something that very much appeals to climbers. Um, I think it also appeals to a lot of wingsuit base jumpers is getting that hit even before the jump of, of dreaming up what's possible, pushing yourself and, uh, and then realizing that once that fades, it becomes progressively harder to get that same sensation without pushing your limits even further. And uh, in the climbing world, that usually works out better for people, especially if they're doing it without snow and, and doing it below 25,000 feet. Um, it's, it's a pretty safe sport in that respect, relatively. Um, and then in base jumping, I think is where it gets pretty complicated pretty quick um, with with that whole topic. Yeah. It, it, there's a, a, a big push in the climbing world to just climb till f like failure, you know, like just keep going until you can't go and you take the huge whipper, like push yourself. And then when you eventually get to base jumping, like if you uh, approach that sport for the same mentality, you're eventually going to push way too far that, you know, for survival. Uh, did you find one of those points and can you tell us about how you shifted your mentality to survive in base jumping coming from a sport where the whole drive was to uh, get to the edge and beyond? Yeah. So I felt really lucky with my base jumping career to have had the climbing career because, um, like I mentioned, I was totally into climbing for a decade. I was actually pretty certain I was going to spend the rest of my life just on the side of El Cap. Um, I was also like 21 when I was having those thoughts, but I was like, I did it. I found the Holy grail, no need to diversify my life at all. I'm just going to live on the side of this rock. And, um, and for a decade that worked, which is looking back a pretty good run, but eventually it did 
wear off. I, I realized like, you know, being on the side of this cliff isn't quite like it used to be. Um, it's not the same feeling. It's not giving me as much as it once did. I maybe can't be as simple as thinking this is the answer to everything forever. And so then I started looking in other places, um, which eventually is what brought me to wingsuit base jumping. So I was then able to look through um, wingsuit in that through that same lens of realizing I'm going to have this amazing period. I don't know how long it'll last where I'll feel the progression. I'll feel, you know, the, the, just the thrill of one of the more, you know, I think incredible things that humans do, but at some point that's going to change and I need to be ready for when the sport doesn't give me quite as much as it once did. Okay. So approaching wingsuit base jumping from that perspective, I'm curious how you kept yourself from like a catastrophic mistake and, uh, how you kept yourself from, uh, pushing so far into that zone of, I, you know, I want this feeling again, uh, that you got beyond, uh, what is sustainable because like a lot of people say exactly what you're saying. Right. And, uh, while climbing has the grading system that you alluded to, like you, if you're a five, eight climber, you can't just get off the ground on a five You're just never going to approach it. It's not possible. Right. But you could be a five, eight base jumper and find yourself really easily on a five thirteen cliffside. And at the time that you came up, we didn't have nearly the same understanding of aerodynamics. The technology was terrible and sometimes couldn't do what we wanted it to do. And, uh, all of the, you know, the planning is, was mostly theoretical. So uh, how did you keep yourself from, you know, getting into a zone where you just couldn't make it back from with all of those things working against you? Well, um, yeah, a few things. One is at the time terrain flying mostly was just keeping things to your left or your right. Um, it, I think wasn't until the certain Tony suits came out that people started really pushing. I mean, I think the first person I saw do it was, uh, Loic at, um, in like Fair a Warren Miller movie. Yeah. Verbier. And, uh, and that was so mind blowing that he, he came down on terrain even though it was only for a short second, but in my mind, uh, that is such a different thing, having the terrain underneath you than having it to your side. And so everyone I jumped with, um, including myself <laughs> always really drew the line kind of there. Um, the only times that I had terrain come up right underneath me, it was always by accident and it was, I felt really lucky to get out of there. Um, and that happened a couple times and including on my last base jump. And so that just that alone, I think explained a lot of, of what we were thinking about because everything else, we, we were pretty conservative on the exits. Um, you know, very f few exits did we say, Oh, if I don't fly perfectly or near perfectly, I'm not going to make it. We almost always had a pretty big margin there. Um, so that's, that's kind of, you know, just to give some insight back into what was cutting edge in 2006, uh, it looked a lot different. Um, the suits were a lot different. 
Can you tell us about uh, coming up in the national park system and uh, <laughs> the history of jumping in Yosemite and maybe some of your brushes with the NPS? Yeah, I mean, so I'll just start by saying, I think at the time I got into base jumping, a lot of people were into the kind of cloak and dagger, um, escaping the police type thing. A, I wasn't in, into it and I was really bad at it. And so I was, I was just not the right person to, uh, come up base jumping where almost every cool thing is illegal. Um, but that's where I was. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't living in, in Europe. And so through that lens, you know, I did everything as conservative as possible. You know, I did most of my jumps either at night or just as it was getting dark or just as it was getting light. I, I did almost nothing in the middle of the day. Um, and when I did is when I actually got busted. And so, um, I think some people really enjoyed that element of, um, escaping the, the park system. And, and I just was always there trying to dream of a world when this stuff was legal. Yeah. And I bet, uh, Gambali's death didn't, uh, really motivate you to, you know, fight with the park system on that front either. Right. I mean, like I dream a dream of where that doesn't have to happen at all. Yeah. And I got to know some of the Rangers and, and a lot of them are, are great people. And some of them really enjoyed hunting base jumpers. And, um, that made me sad. It kind of made me wonder like, really, you, you, it seems like if you saw the context of, of what people are doing here, you wouldn't be so excited about, you know, hunting down people who are just jumping off a cliff, you know, especially after, Frank's death and seeing how that pursuit could end up in someone dying. You know, it's, it, I was hoping for a little more kind of big picture thinking about, you know, what are these laws really about? You know, how should we really choose to enforce them? And some people, I think in the, in the parks service, see that big picture and then, and, and others um, are like, sweet, I'm glad this is illegal. Cause now I get to go hunting. Yeah. And, and what do you think the proper application is here? What do you think the issue is with them, you know, seeing us as, uh, uh, you know, these criminals, because it's interesting that if you look at Yosemite, you can, you can do a lot of things that'll kill you. Like, I mean, you can free solo climb all you want. Heck you could even free solo climb with a parachute on, you could free solo climb with a parachute on fall <laughs> and die and no one would care. But if you pulled that parachute to save your life, then all of a sudden you're getting arrested. So like, what's the deal? How did that turn? Uh, I mean, I think the key is that um, the base jumpers never really organize themselves to um, uh, unite to change the laws. Because I think, you know, when you look at the, the law, the illegal air delivery, it's not the most sturdy law. It actually doesn't even, I think, mention base jumping. It's about, from my understanding, it's about um, illegally like resupplying backcountry people. And they just said, rather than go create a new law, why don't we just stick base jumping under this one? I, I think a united effort, um, at least back then, could have probably made some headway in changing that. I don't know about today. But 
I think that's one thing that base jumpers have always struggled with is wanting to be very individualistic, but at the same time, come together to change some of those, um, laws that just don't seem right. And it's, it's hard to do both, um, to come together. You, you do have to often compromise and, and want to get a whole bunch of, of personalities in a room and say, maybe we'll, um, put our personalities a little to the side for a moment while we can all come together to really try to change something. And, um, to my knowledge that hasn't happened yet, but I sure hope it does. Yeah, I would say we shouldn't hold our breath for any new developments anytime soon. I know by sitting in various meetings with the mayor's office in Chamonix in an attempt to find a way that we could keep jumping legal in the valley, it was just that. There was a total inability to put personalities and objectives of individuals aside for what most of us felt like was the greater good. The lack of unification was undeniable and disappointing and I don't think we've come any farther at this point. Yeah. And I think that's part of this golden age moment is um, we're still at the beginning where it's it's a little bit of the Wild West. And uh, that comes with a lot of pros and cons. But there are pros. I mean, there will only be kind of one birth of the sport, one era that I think we're still in. And there's certain parts of that to be celebrated. And then there's also a lot of parts, you know you know, the, the likelihood of dying being the biggest one, but also, um, what we're talking about here, the, the likelihood of getting people to agree to, you know, rally and change legislation <laughs> generally doesn't come with the wild west, uh, era. Chris, could you take us right back to Baffin? Because that really blew my mind. You're standing on this snowy exit point with Melissa Burns you guys have a little banter back and forth and she's nervously trying to find a place to put her feet and you guys decide to do a two-way. It's one of the most incredible moments. Well, for me, looking back, it's one of those moments where I was like, I have to do this. So can you tell us what brought you there and what that trip was all about? And of course, what came shortly after that? Yeah, I mean, that trip was definitely some of the highest moments of my life and the lowest, um, all captured in that, I think it was seven or eight days. Um, I mean, ever since, uh, I think Will Ox showed me some video of him and Dave Barlia jumping off polar Sunspire. I think, um, I knew that Baffin was it. And as a big wall climber, I'm supposed to want to go climb in Baffin, but I don't like the cold. And so I was so happy <laughs> to get to go to Baffin Island and not have to be on the side of the cliff. And sure enough, right when we show up at the base of Kaguti, there's these Norwegians. Uh, I think they're Norwegians who were climbing it and spending like three weeks on the side of a North face where the <laughs> you know, average temperature is 20 degrees. And they have like a little piece of tooth floss as their polar bear fence. And we'd seen a polar bear like that morning. <laughs> and so I was feeling like this is, you know, I'm in the right spot. And, um, and so, you know, Kaguti, um, is kind of, it's maybe 300 feet taller than El Cap, but kind of a similar type of rock as far as steepness and, and, and kind of the look of it. And, um, we took it, you know, kind of easy on the first couple jumps, but I quickly realized that the broader Kaguti massif, um, had all these other things to jump off. And it specifically had, 
um, this cliff that got progressively smaller the deeper it went into a canyon, um, which I knew that I think Dave Barley had looked at jumping but hadn't jumped. Um, and and I think he recognized like, oh, that's kind of the progression would be able to uh, start at the side that's taller where you have much bigger margin and slowly work your way back. And so that's what I did. It took me um, three jumps to get all the way into the back of this canyon, which at the time wasn't super common to want to make your start shorter. Um, but as we all know, um, being able to jump into the back of a canyon and then fly down it is about as good as it gets. Um, and especially in 2007, that was, you know, really appealing to be able to try to, to find that type of exit. And so, um, I showed the footage to Melissa and, um, she got super excited. And so, um, we did one jump before that. And, and I think the reason we were so nervous is because we did one jump before where it was off the main uh, exit on Kagudi and she did three, two, one, see ya, but instead of jumping, she hesitated and I pretty much almost jumped on top of her, uh, to the point where like mid flight, I was trying to figure out where she was. I didn't know where I was. Um, it was terrifying. So when we went to the, the high stakes, you know, jump in the back of a Canyon exit, I was really nervous about that happening. Um, you know, two people colliding on the exit, never a good thing. And so she was there and I was listening to her going, I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you. Like, I don't care what you say about three, two, one. I am waiting until I see that foot leave. And so I was nervously just standing there watching her back foot. And sure enough, you know, I, I, I saw her push. I, I went after and it ended up being, you know, probably the coolest jump I ever did. Um, just for the location, the, the progression to get to that moment, um, how it all went. I think you can tell on the video when I open exactly how I'm feeling. Um, it was, it was about as good as it gets. Um, and then it got about as you know bad as it gets, which was, uh, we showed that footage to Jimmy Hall, who was there and he was, um, you know, really talented in many things. Um, but, but he really wanted to be able to capture us doing that jump because he was like, wow. And, um, we went all went back up there and, um, yeah, he, uh, we did a three way and, um, and I, I still don't know exactly what happened cause I never saw it, but, uh, he didn't make it. And that was basically the beginning of the end of uh wingsuit base jumping for me. Oh man, you took us on a roller coaster ride there. I remember from the video, this sense of elation that you had screaming on opening about how amazing that was. And just now taking us down to the darkest moments of what base jumping can deliver. I recently came across an excerpt that you uh, put in the great book of base. Could you touch on that and why it is that you decided to quit jumping? Yeah, I actually, I reread it this morning and, um, yeah. Um, you know, at the time in, I think 2006, there wasn't a single wingsuit death and, um, it just shows you at the time we really thought wingsuiting was about to make the sport super safe, or at least I told myself that, um, 
because I thought, well, you have so many more opportunities to get into clear air to open your parachute. Um, you know, so often it's the cliff strikes and 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 those types of things that were killing people pre uh, wingsuit, and so this is that that tool that's going to make the the sport safer. And so I was totally just floored um, when I was there on a death. And then, you know, moments after, you know, years after that to see more and more people and see it accelerate and see just really good people um, who I thought were super experienced and thoughtful and careful start dying. It really just changed my whole perspective. And it made me start thinking through uh, the lens of, um, yes, this was the most incredible experience, you know, I've probably ever had that one year in 2006 and into 2007 will, you know, for the rest of my life be some of the most meaningful moments I've had both personally and with other people. But at the same time, there's another potentially 60 or 70 years left to find all sorts of other things. And, am I going to trade that 60 or 70 years for this activity? And that can be a really hard decision. It, for sure, it was hard for me, I think, until two things happened. One was I saw more and more super talented people die, like Shane McConkie. And then um, I just was getting less and less out of it. Um, you know, I don't know if it's just that the dopamine wasn't flowing anymore or what, but when those two factors um came together the fact that more friends started dying and i was getting less out of it even though it was still hard to quit i knew that there was so much more in the next 60 or 70 years that if i trusted myself to quit would be filled with really meaningful stuff that i which which is hard to do because you can't imagine the next 60 years i mean no one can but you can trust that based on the past new, exciting, different things will, will come, even though they won't look as good on YouTube, but they'll come. And, um, and I, and I just trusted that. And, um, and sure enough, that's, that's what happened. Looking back, do you have any regrets of leaving the sport behind when you did leaving that card table, although you were up in chips? You know, I, I really was feeling it a little. Um, and I did, you know, my first, I took uh, Sean Leary on his first base jump and got to follow his progression. And basically all the stuff that I never got to jump in Yosemite, he was just ticking off left and right in these new suits that were so much, so much better. And, uh, and there was a moment where I I'd go climbing, I'd go climb the nose with him and, and talk about the sport and the, where it was headed and what he was doing. And I was sort of, thinking about maybe getting back into it. Um, and at one point I think Matt Gertis sent me one of the, the kind of modern Tony suits, um, you know, this pre squirrel. And I, I tried that on, but then Sean died and that, you know, the wind, you know, the door like slightly opened, but then it just got completely shut. Um, when he died, that really, um, you know, shook me really hard. It shook a lot of our climbing friends, really hard. Um, and then it was two years, two or three years later that Dean died. And so, uh, you know, 
all these things just kind of, you know, compounded on top of each other. Um, and, 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 and that's why I, I still haven't base jumped since I think 2007. Yeah. Um, the loss of these super colorful and talented characters definitely takes the wind out of your sails when you've always looked up to them. And I can definitely understand that. Back to the reward pathway. A phenomenon that I notice is that people will get into the sport, rage super fucking hard, check off all these incredible jumps, all the most hardcore jumps in a period of like three or four years. And then just like that, there's nothing left. And it's like they can't reach that level of elation and joy as we were talking about. They can't reach that dopamine fix. Do you think that there's something to be learned there in life and adventure sports as far as burning too brightly? I mean, I think, um, you know, the burning too brightly usually is a great thing um, in most activities unless, you know, it it kills you. Um, And so that's the hard thing about wingsuit for me. Although I, I have to say, like when I, in the times when I was getting the most out of it, I was the most engaged and yes, I had some close calls, but I, it, it all actually felt worth it. Um, I think the key moment is when it suddenly isn't burning as brightly. And, and that's, um, that's why I wrote that chapter for the, the great book of base. And then I wrote a follow-up on it after Sean Leary died, which was, you know, I wasn't trying to convince people to stop wingsuit base jumping. It was really writing what I would want to hear when I'd reached that point where it wasn't quite as good. And I was confused. I was like, wait, this, this used to feel so much better and cooler. And I used to be so much more excited. Why don't I feel that anymore? And so I was writing it for myself and for anyone else who might be in that moment. Um, I think when you are burning that brightly, it's, it's really hard to, to argue against it. And I don't think there's much you can really do. Um, cause I can't even like look at back at myself in 2005, 2006 and say that I, I should have slowed down because, you know, it, it was just a magical time. So it's, it's a, it's a hard topic, but I think it's, it's really worth looking into, I think both like that the idea of dopamine and another similar one is the hedonistic treadmill, which is basically the idea that, uh, you know, humans can do these amazing things that they then quickly normalize. And as soon as it becomes normal, you're in this tough spot where you're like, Oh God, now I got to push it a little further. So I think having, you know, consciousness about that, that it's uh, it's not just you, it's pretty much, I think every human on the planet has to deal with these neurotransmitters and, and how they, affect us and to make sure you're on the, you know, the controlling side of that process and not being controlled by it and, and having the, you know, the self-awareness to make sure you're making the decisions that really are going to make you happy. And that's the tricky thing about dopamine is you're like, wait, this used to make me so happy. So if I just do it a little harder, maybe it'll come back. And it, and it just doesn't work that way. So you said that you were writing that uh, excerpt in the Great Book of Bass as basically like advice to your younger self. And we highly encourage everyone to go read that section and the rest of the book. It's amazing. Um, but I also find that you're in a unique perspective uh, in that like 
you have had years to reflect on a pretty cutting edge career. Uh, after having reflected on your base jumping career, do you have any advice for your younger self uh, you know, that might be valuable for other people that are approaching it from the same angle or at the same rate or you know, uh, following in your footsteps in some way? Yeah, I mean, to oversimplify it, to me, it comes down to the margin you're giving yourself and really understanding the margin and realizing you only have to have one jump where you screw up the margin and it's all over. And I, th- I think we all understand that at some level, but we, I know at least I didn't fully give that as much weight as I should have. And just the idea of, um, Yes, you can push it. Progression is so fun. It's maybe the best part of the whole sport is pushing your limits. But at the same time, understanding you really have to always be thinking about the margin and where are you at and what could go wrong that you haven't thought of yet. And um, and that's really hard to do. But that's something that I know I should have done better. And you know, it could be that I just got lucky that I got through that. Um, certainly some, some people told me I was lucky I got through it. You know, speaking of margin, I recently listened to an episode of Alex Honnold's podcast that you were on and I found it super entertaining and, you know, especially the elements of you and, and Steph Davis. And quite honestly, though, I walked away after listening to it and was kind of disappointed as the way that base jumping was sort of thrown out there as like the risk is a finite thing because it really depends on how dangerous it is, depends on how you practice it. And even like the slider down jumping on Steph's portion was just like base jumping and, you know, Mario died base jumping and, and she went back to Moab and continued to base jump. And it was like, no mention of micro disciplines. And, you know, I don't expect a a mainstream podcast like that to go into great detail about how different all of it is. But do you think maybe that I'm just being pedantic here or maybe looking for more detail than there actually is? Or do you think that there's a way that people can practice that has a big impact on the level of safety? Man, that one is so hard because when I wrote the kind of follow-up after Sean Leary died, the one thing that rattled me was just how experienced a lot of the people were that were dying. And that was really hard for me to wrap my head around. Like, I feel like most activities in life, you get more experience and you're giving yourself an advantage. And, um, and in, in some of these, uh, deaths and base jumping, it, it seems like it, yeah, it would have been so much simpler to say like, oh, that person wasn't experienced or they were making really sloppy mistakes, but that doesn't seem to be the case in a lot of these, these deaths. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, and it, and it's also just hard, I think, to talk about, um, a sport that has such heavy consequences, um, really thoughtfully. I, I always try and I always feel like I'm coming up a little short. Yeah, it's like we almost don't have enough data to support any of our conclusions, really, right? It's like we have this tiny data set from our own personal experience, and we draw big conclusions from it, and really the answers aren't necessarily there. I don't really know what the answer is either. I mean, 
maybe it's my own desire to have the sense of, you know, I'm doing it right, <laughs> that I'm doing it safely, that I'm doing it differently. And of course, we all criticize and analyze people's accidents. And it's almost like our own way of setting us apart from those people that have fucked up. Yeah, don't kid yourself, Laurent. You're in the highest risk category that there is because you are an experienced wingsuit base jumper. <laughs> I mean, I think just straight up, man, like, you know, if we were to take climbing as an example, very few people die in the climbing gym, but like there are a ton of people that die out in the mountains and those people are far more experienced than everyone that climbs in the gym. And like, yeah, I think there's a certain level of experience that gives us all a little bit of buffer when it comes to being able to calculate margin and things of this nature. But at a certain point, like chaos theory comes to bear and bad things happen to good people doing good things. And you have to be incredibly lucky in that moment to survive. Like the human experience is one that is like inherently full of mistakes. And so eventually we're going to be slow and eventually we're going to be late. And if you're an experienced jumper, then you're putting yourself in a situation where mistakes might not be able to be made. Yeah. Right. And at this point, we all put ourselves out in this position of is the juice worth the squeeze and how much actual risk is being taken? I feel like my practice has become fairly pedestrian in a way. Like I go to Varan on a Wednesday and most of the time when I go there, I'm focusing on if I could beat my previous hike time. You know, sometimes maybe I'm flying a new suit. So I'm feeling out how it flies differently. I'm comparing my GPS data and see if I flew a line a little faster or flatter. And I feel relatively humble. I think that there's a level of humility in the way that I practice where I've come to accept that I won't ever get that same sort of dopamine push that I did when I was, you know, like in the heart of it, like making it my primary focus in life. Maybe this is just my attempt to at plausible deniability, but at the moment, the juice is still delicious. So Chris, I got a question for you. Um, because I too went through a period where I saw all the experienced people dying around me and I was like, Ooh, man, I got to take a step back from this. Um, but, uh, I just basically took a step back from wingsuit terrain flying and I, I continued doing some more pedestrian jumping. So my question to you is, uh, why did you full tilt quit rather than just experience the sport at maybe 50% of what you're capable of? I, I think, um, when I was doing Varan and Sepp was there and JT Holmes was there, I remember, I think JT or, or Seb turned to each other and goes, that guy has no self-control. And I just think <laughs> I don't have the best, <laughs> I don't have enough, I think, self-control to, um, say I could dial it back 50%, at least not right now. Um, just because I, I, I would, I would need to find a way to be creative without pushing, you know, the limits. And, and I think that's, that's hard to do. Um, just that's my personality is, is I really want to be creative and think of something new. Um, maybe I haven't thought about it the right way, but, um, I'll also say my dad, um, used to cover formula one in the fifties in Europe and, that sport was crazy dangerous to the point where people wouldn't wear their seatbelts because they wanted to get ejected so they wouldn't burn to death. And then that sport made a decision, I think around the time that um, Senna died and maybe a little before it, like, we're just not going to tolerate risk anymore. We are now going to um, focus on safety. I think 
part of it was because, you know, the big sponsors didn't want people to be burning to death on TV anymore. Um, and then I think part of it was just the progression of the sport where they were like, yeah, the wild, wild West was fun, but it's time to, to live and to have the, the best people in this sport live. And then you look at formula one today and it's, it's relatively safe. Um, now on the other hand, you have high altitude mountaineering. I don't think that'll ever really be safe just because you can't dictate what a giant Serac is going to do. And you just have to be in that arena to do that sport. But I think base shipping somewhere in the middle. Um, I think there are opportunities um, to not only personally, but as an entire sport to say, let's move to a new era. Let's really prioritize safety. Uh, let's all work on it together. Nothing's going to happen overnight. There probably won't be any giant thing, but let's move a little more towards the path that formula one took. Um, and I think that's a real possibility. And if this, and if the sport ever really starts to go that direction, I would love to get back involved if, if it does really look like there's a way to do it really safely, um, where it's like going on a mountain bike ride. I know I'm going to do this amazing thing outside and I know I'm probably going to, you know, come right back and be able to kiss my wife and my two kids. Well, that's certainly the track Laurent's on. Yeah. Yeah. It appears that way, but it's really interesting what you say that speaking on this element of risk. And I want to talk to you about base jumping on a spectrum of risk. I think there's some predominant figures in the sport, you know, who are screaming about how dangerous it is. And yes, I think I know it's very dangerous, but I think it really depends. And if we're to look at a future where Formula One is for base jumping, it's a future where I think when our friends are flying underneath tree boughs and making turns on terrain, we're we're just not going to tolerate it. The sponsors are going to drop you. Your friends are going to have serious conversations with you and people online will just see it for what it is. And I think it's easy. I mean, from my perspective, like guys like me and you and others who have been in the sport for quite a while, it's like, there's a bunch of people when they go in, we're just not surprised just by watching their videos and the way that they fly. It's just, there's no surprise, but every once in a while, there's like Stanley, there's these accidents where it's just like, what the fuck? And if we put our margin of risk into these brackets of what the fuck, then is base jumping the most dangerous sport or is it the same at the highest level of, let's say, alpine climbing and paragliding and other, in air quotes, extreme sports? Are they, aren't they all just in the same margins of danger? Can you speak on that some more? Ooh. Um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's hard for me to go, I guess, much, much deeper in this topic. I, I feel like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just tricky for me. I hope, uh, I hope you can understand that. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. It's tricky for all of us. Yeah. What do you think, Matt? Can you, uh, ask me a more condensed version of that question? So do you think by rule that base jumping is the most dangerous sport or is that like at the highest level, let's say of alpine climbing, paragliding and other in air quotes, extreme sports operating within similar danger margins? 
Man, that's that's really tough to say because like, how do you compare wingsuit terrain flying uh, with summiting K two? You know, like, is it the most dangerous? Yeah, statistically speaking, maybe. Um, but the base rates for the other really extremely dangerous activities are are pretty low, and so it's it's hard to yeah, it's hard to compare. I'd say it's definitely 100%. It's the, it's the most dangerous activity that somebody can approach, um, without any, without, with the fewest barriers, you know, like I said, like, you know, if you're going to summit K2, you can't just walk up to it and do it. Like you're going to have, you know, probably a dozen people that you're going to have to go through in order to like check boxes and, uh, get help from and, you know, there's so many opportunities for those people to cross check you. Whereas like, you know, wingsuit terrain flying, like, look, dude, some kid bought a rig on eBay and then just walked out to Florida to jump it. And that's not even the first time that's happened. So like, is it the most dangerous possible activity? Yeah, I'd I'd say so. Yes. Yeah. The difficulty of entry is not hard it's like or like it isn't climbing right like yeah. you have to have the ability to climb to your level like whereas like you said chris it's you can just find yourself at a 514 and send it yeah and i think i did buy my first rig in off someone in florida off ebay <laughs> and I'm, I'm not joking <laughs> <laughs> Florida man actually again. this this is actually a pretty interesting well first first i want to say um, I think it's hard to say what's more dangerous, high altitude mountaineering or base, probably blade. It's hard to say, but what I think is certain is that most of the high altitude mountaineering deaths are from objective things, um, such as avalanches or things like cerebral edema, which is in your control, sort of, not really like no one knows when that's just going to hit them versus wingsuit base, it's clearly so much more in your control than, a, you know, an, an avalanche coming down and taking you out. Um, but back to the eBay uh, container, I actually, my first um, container was a Velcro rig, which um, I, I wonder if any of your listeners, if those even exist, have existed in the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah, man. But not some, only some that. people still jump them. <laughs> really? Yeah, well, yeah, they're awesome. They're like relics and awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know how many people are jumping them off um cliffs um with tracking suits, but um <laughs> that's all I that's all I had and it was crazy because the velcro showed up um a little worn. And so what I would do is I would actually duct tape the top to give me a li- <laughs> to, <laughs> to give me a little extra and um Yes, it is just as bad as it sounds. But at the same time, I was trying to use this, um, you know, I was trying to imitate super terminal. So I was trying to outfly certain terrain, but it was, it was in a, you know, a desert Southwest scale. We didn't have 4,000 foot cliffs. They were much smaller. And so when I would not make it, sometimes I would pitch and it was amazing how fast that whole thing opened. And there was a couple three second canopy rides, um, which I don't know how low that means you open, but it's, it's pretty low. And 
And I remember JT turning to me is like, I think that that Velcro might have just saved your ass on that. Uh, the fact that you had something that was that kind of just because they would just be these kind of almost, you know, slider up or slider down openings, just like pow. And then, and yeah, Yikes. anyways, I couldn't, I couldn't resist on the, the eBay from Florida. Oh my comment. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mostly people are jumping Velcro rigs like super low because they just want everything to blow open. Like you're saying, uh, yep. I don't know anyone that's doing terminal Velcro. <laughs> was that in fact your last jump? Uh, no, no, that was in the like early days before I got a wingsuit of, um, still jumping my Walmart suit. Um, I'm curious to hear about your last jump. Like, did you know when you landed that that was the last one and where were you and how did it go? And was it decisive at that moment? Yeah. Um, so at that point, um, this is probably a year after Baffin and, um, I was already losing steam quick. Um, but there were kind of two big things that I thought were the bucket list. One was to step off Mount Whitney and fly all the way to, uh, Lone Pine. But I knew the suits weren't good enough at the time to do that. Um, later Chris LeBounty would do a version of that, but, um, the other one was the Grand Canyon and, um, I, I really loved it because it was a, you know, it's 280 miles, but at the time it was really hard to figure out where to jump. And that became the most enticing part was driving to every possible spot you could drive to easily. Um, and realizing, oh man, it's all a bunch of like 300 and 400 foot starts for the most part, which in, um, you know, 2007 wasn't enough. And so that led to, oh, I'm going to have to float the whole thing um, to, to figure this one out. And sure enough, by floating it, um, I not only got to do some like low cliffs that were, you know, like 600 footers right above the water, but I then got to look up at every single cliff, figured out that there is this like probably 1300 foot overhanging wall, which is, you know, it's, it's just a massive, amazing, uh, start, but I actually didn't want to jump it. I really loved the feeling of the discovery at that moment more than anything. And, and I knew that the jumping was probably going to be a letdown. Um, but I had, I couldn't resist the Kodak courage. And, um, when some friends called me up and said, we want to kind of film this and maybe turn it into a movie or something, I said, ah, I can get psyched for, you know, kind of one, one more. Um, and, and it had always been a dream, but, um, but the jump then went so spectacularly bad. Um, first off. I, I learned the hard way that if you are totally exhausted and the thing about the Grand Canyon is you have to, if you're doing a new exit, the hardest part is figuring out how to get back out. And there's very few established trails. So this is one of those cases where just figuring out how to get out, you have to basically like do a first descent of a super gnarly hike um, and then hike back out just to figure out that you can do it. And I was just wasted tired, like never been that tired, but there was going to be a sandstorm coming in. So I was like, I just have to do this. I can totally suck it up for 30 seconds. Um, but what I didn't realize at the time was, um, when you get really tired, it's more or less like being drunk. You just lose your balance. And of course, when you have no balance, it's pretty hard to fly a wingsuit well. And so 
uh, I just flew the worst I'd ever f- flown. Um, got the closest I've ever gotten to hitting the cliff. Um, you know, it, when you look, when you looked at the vi- video footage, it was really about to meet the shadow. And especially in 2007, like nobody did that, <laughs> um, at least intentionally. Like, um, and so that was one thing, but then I, um, I'd kind of screwed myself because me and Dean Potter had really been pushing to make these skydiving rigs lighter. And we looked at all the two inch, um, webbing and we said, Hey, climbing harnesses are so much lighter. Can we do, can we make these rigs lighter? Uh, I understand why a base jumping rig would be heavy if you're not hiking 4,000 feet, but we're all hiking. Like we should, uh, for, and, and we definitely should remove these three rings because who would ever need that? Like whoever lands in the water. And so I think we helped kind of, uh, get the three rings out of, uh, rigs. And at least I got, got them out of my rig at the time, um, through great pleading. And then at that exact moment, because I couldn't make the landing area, I had to decide between landing in the water without a three ring and, uh, pounding into the boulders and probably not being able to walk out. And I was like, yeah, what could go wrong with landing in, in the water? And, uh, and of course, if you don't know, um, a parachute in the water quickly becomes an anchor that sucks you to the bottom. And, uh, it, it was a miracle. I, I survived twice in one jump. And so it was very clear. Um, that was the last one. And I think within days, Shane McConkie died. And so it was just, you know, one thing on top of another. Um, and that was it. Yeah. Too much. That's an amazing story. The whole canopy experience. Like I've had ones similar and it's horrific. And I'm wondering, there's also a big element of that story too, that maybe you could tell us about. It's like the legal consequences. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm a really bad criminal (laughs) and, uh, somehow, um, Within days of that jump, I actually got, you know, called by a, a federal investigator that they just wanted to chat. And, um, and I immediately call one of my best friends who's a lawyer who's just like, there's nothing good you can say. You just have to tell them you can't talk right now. And, uh, and that started just this surreal process of why would the federal government with all the stuff going on want to hunt down a base jumper. But, uh, I learned that, you know, the, the federal legal system often doesn't turn its microscope towards you, but once it does, um, good luck. And, um, and I ended up in that situation where it, it just seems surreal that they were putting so many resources and times and so much time into, um, especially because the jumps were like within hundreds of feet of being legal based on land ownership. And, and I thought there was actually a moment where I thought, you know, you have this river, usually when a river divides, uh, boundaries, they do a line in the middle and give one side to one party. Um, but this is an instance where the, the U S government took the whole river and gave the native Americans this kind of weird, like, well, maybe the 1975 flood level. And then they like went back on treaties and there's all this gray area. I was like, hi, I wonder if I fight this, if it could go to the Supreme court and I could get the native Americans back, like (laughs) back to the center of the river. Uh, I didn't do that. Um, and I settled. And so, uh, I'll never be able to, to do that. Um, but 
you know, the, the, the takeaway from the whole thing was, um, don't go federal. Um, and, and that's, that's the reality of, of being in the U S you should, you should be a much better criminal than I am. If, if you want to base jump in the U S regularly off, off stuff like that. Is there uh, any more actionable advice that you could give jumpers facing legal issues such as yourself that they are the ones that you face and that may not have the opportunity to have a good lawyer or friends that are lawyers? Is there anything that you could suggest on how they can approach this shit show? Um, the advice I got from some Rangers actually was, first of all, it's, a, it's usually about the car. In my case, it wasn't, but, um, usually the car is where they get you either they get you returning to it or there's evidence there. Um, and so that's, you know, one, one piece of advice is to be very mindful of, of the, the in and out spots. Uh, but then, you know, yeah, once you're, you're in trouble, there's, um, I think most people just don't realize that whole right to remain silent thing is real. Um, and it's, it's often people choosing not to remain silent that does them in. Um, and so really understanding that is, is probably the other big takeaway. How about before they get caught by the national park system? Do you have any advice for jumpers who want to jump in national parks? I mean, if I was giving advice to myself, I'd say just stay away. Um, I know it's tricky because El Cap is the start of the sport, you know, or one of them at least. And so everyone has that on their list. Um, it'd be like telling someone who wants to Alpine climb, they're not allowed to go to Chamonix or to the Alps. Um, it's putting base jumpers in a tricky spot. Overall though, um, now I would really focus on, on the legal areas. Um, but if you are going to, um, be in, in national parks, I, I would always just assume, you know, what, what would the really thoughtful, nice ranger be thinking or doing right now? And if I were that really nice, thoughtful ranger, I feel like I'd be like, you know, if these people are really low key, they're not doing it in the middle of the day. They're not creating a scene. They're not talking about it afterwards. I'd probably give them a pass. It's not really hurting anyone. And so I think just adopting that ninja mentality is the way to go. Gotcha. So like paper bag that drink on the corner. Yes. That way when the cops rolling by, you're just like, dude, I'm showing you some respect. Okay. Let's just all pretend that this is a Gatorade and go on with our days. Exactly. How about uh reflections on a base jumping career? Um, anything, uh, looking back from, you know, several years later, uh, that has come to light. I mean, I've just felt really fortunate to, to be there at that right time to, to have that blank canvas. It really felt like someone rolled out the whole map of the U S and said, it's blank. I mean, you know, Dave Barlia and Andy West jumped off half dome and El Cap in wingsuits, but, um, there wasn't much other than that. And so that was a magical time. And now I just take that and think about what are the next kind of little mini golden ages? There probably won't be anyone quite like that, but what are some kind of other ones that are maybe not as exciting um, visually, but um, through relationships and building community could be actually even more fulfilling. 
And so that's, that was always what I took away from climbing was when I was at the beginning of my climbing career, I was shocked that Yvonne Chouinard and Royal Robbins and these legends, you know, gave up climbing to go like fly fishing. I was like, what, where did they go wrong? But then I started to realize that that same kind of, um, creativity that brought them to making first descents on all these, um, cliffs then could be transferred to so many other things and ultimately create a much more interesting life and story to take that kind of passion and go through many different things. And so that's, that's how I look back on the base jumping is I felt so privileged to be able to, to have that moment, that all consuming moment to fully live it, but then to turn it to the next thing. And at the same time, I mean, that's part of why I love your podcast and, and still talking with Yuri, I'll, I'll text him like, Hey, do you think you can jump off this? And, uh, I, I'm just probably a few clicks away from wanting to go buy a laser finder just so I can go see what's possible and, and enjoy <laughs> that, that part of the sport, which is the, the discovery sport, even if, um, it's unlikely I'll be, uh, stepping off until it's drastically safer. Well, we'll keep a weather eye out for you. Um, how about looking back through uh, the conversation we've just had? Are, are there any points that we've missed along the way that you'd like to speak on before we close this podcast out? Um, no, this has been a pleasure. I mean, I think for me, the most interesting thing is following the different personalities and how they influence each other. And hopefully I open some eyes to some of these names that maybe were on the path to not being as prominent, you know, the, the Frank Gambales, Dan Osmonds, um, these people who did such interesting stuff that I think can then be built upon. And I think that's when these sports are the most interesting is not only the personal development, but the collaboration, the innovation um, that you, that you get with, you know, uh, your best friends. And so I hope that that part of the sport continues to evolve. Um, it, it looks like it is, and, uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to keep following it. Thanks, man. Nice. I like that sentiment, you know, in and amongst all of the brand wars and the personal, like, could, you know, vying for, uh, you know, competition in the space. Let's, uh, remember to collaborate with one another's cause that's definitely how most of the progression happened back in the day collaboration amongst equals. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think our friend Sean put it best that we're becoming more precise as a community. And I think that we're trying to do our little part to help hone that edge by bringing people from the past and those who are practicing it now to contribute. And I really appreciate your contribution. Thank you. Really uh, appreciate what you guys are doing. And I'm going to be uh, listening to every episode. Right on. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell. We love you, man. And if you see him on the street, give him a high five and a hug. Tell him you love the show and ask him to show you his favorite swimwear from Thailand. See you in the next one.